Hello, everyone, and welcome to not just another episode of Lords of Limited, but we are live from Twitch chat. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. What's up, Ethan? Uh, I'm very excited, Ben. This is super fun. We didn't get to do a live show in Vegas this year. That was our like probably one of the highlights last year of going to GP Vegas was doing our live recording there, and that was super fun. But uh, you know, 2020 be damned. We're not going to let that stop us from doing another live show here so we're doing it on uh, on my twitch channel here which i'm very excited about heck no one thing that is missing from las vegas was that thunderous applause i know right maybe i'll maybe i'll just cut from that episode the applause and just plop it in here after your introduction what do you think about that i would love it i'm already getting self-conscious about people seeing how much i gesture with my hands when we record <laughs> do you i don't use my hands at all <laughs> oh my god i'm so expressive oh we're getting some clap claps in chat i love to see that for sure ben so i know we you know we've got a bunch of questions lined up of course we're gonna be taking questions live from chat so we don't have a ton planned ourselves but i did want to put a little uh maybe addendum to our arena cube episode last week ben what's the new hotness in arena cube for you Oh, Wilderness Reclamation is the new hotness for me in Arena Cube. Yeah, me too. I saw you. So first of all, I got beat by Wilderness Reclamation um, by another streamer, Mika Cheris. And it was really sweet. I've been a skeptic of that card for sure, because it seems like it slots into my like enchantments that do nothing thing that I had a like b- big argument about last week. But the card is the truth. And you really you really push it over the top for me. So I really like that card. What, what are you looking for when you draft Wilderness Reclamation in the Arena Cube? Oh, it's super powerful. It essentially doubles your mana. So you really just want instant speed interaction. So you want the dream is like Gear Hulk, Sublime Epiphany. You want some instant speed card draw, like maybe a hieroglyphic illumination or two, some sort of that type of effect. And then you want a lot of the counter spells and some draw sevens like Midnight Clock is especially sweet or Commit to Memory. So you're essentially trying to like trade off, get some early removal stick a wilderness reclamation and then once you do that it's pretty much game over because you can tap out for threats and then hold up counter spells as well you can tap out for memory on your turn refill your hand have counter spells up it's just a hard lock once you get wilderness reclamation out yeah i was thinking about it wrong the first time that i drafted it i had like the one drops that make tokens like ovaya and reese thinking that i needed mana sinks on board because one of the ways i lost to it was with the scarab god and i was like oh my god this is insane like you get to tap out and then use Scarab God on my turn once you untap all your lands. But it's not really that. It's much more like a blue-green gold card, as, you, as you're mentioning here, with holding up a bunch of counter magic. You keep saying Reese. That makes me think of Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's definitely Reese the Redeemed, right? Well, so first of all, wait, did you say Reese's or Reese's? Reese's. No, that's the man's name is Reese. And he has the peanut butter cups. It's not Reese's. All right, Reese's peanut butter cups then. (laughs) Anyway, I'm pretty sure it's Reese. I went to school for talking. Remember when you (laughs) thought it was Ikoria? I do remember when I thought it was Ikoria. The worst was Canyon Sloth. Do you remember that? Canyon Sloth. Yes, yes. Now, we're not getting into if Reese's is a candy bar. I lost that argument long ago. All right. Anyway, so we've got a lot of questions to get to today. I'm sure we'll have more rolling in. So before we do that, we have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. You know, for the this past month, I've been saying it's a season of giving. 
But once January hits, it's a season of taking then. Uh, <laughs> but if you are interested in giving back to the show, uh, you know, you get some, uh, get some value out of uh, our episodes each and every week, either on Arena or Magic Online, whatever. Uh, you found our Cube episode to be helpful, to, to burn some gems with. Um, any, any and all things you want to get back to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lords of Limited to do so. And we have a bunch of perks along the way for however you want to, uh, however much you want to give back to the show. Um, but everybody gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord, which, as we say, each and every week is the best resource the best community out there for limited tech support 24 7 and we also want to make sure that we shout out each and every new patron the first week that they join this week we are welcoming david general mills Jaden, and ilton thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate your support yeah cannot say thank you enough you know as the years coming to a close here 2020 and all that really want to take the time to say thank you to all the patrons it is incredible um your support throughout the years since we've started the podcast and we wouldn't be doing this without you. So from the bottom of both of our hearts, thank you, thank you, thank you. And looking forward to many more. Yeah, for sure. The show is now brought to you in part as well by Channel Fireball. Channelfireball.com, best place to go for anything you need magic related. They've got a couple holiday promos going on this season. The first is you can win a PS5 while you buy any of their shopping crates over at CFB.com. They've got a variety of crates uh, from whatever you're interested in, Commander Legends, Call Time, or Ikoria any of those formats. And whenever you buy one of those shopping crates, they also donate um, to No Kid Hungry. So an excellent use of your money to purchase at CFB. In addition, they're getting rid of 2020 with a plane wide celebration. You can get 7% off any single you buy as we roll out the year from now until January 3rd. And when you take advantage of any of those promos or anything over at channelfireball.com, please remember to use code LOL at checkout. I do think that plain white celebration uh, promo is super sweet. That's like a good deal. And I also just love the sort of flavor behind it as well as we as we get rid of 2020. Absolutely. All right. So let's dive in here. We've got uh, a bunch of questions already in the queue. And as we said, if, uh, if you're watching live, get those questions in chat and we'll make sure they end up in our Google Doc and we'll Try and get through as many of these as we possibly can in the next hour. So first question up here is from Abadur, and they ask how to, quote, stay open when I'm supposed to draft a deck with a strong theme. Do I have to decide faster than normal? And when would you switch plans? And I think this was this question asked in the context of Arena Cube? Possibly. I don't remember. Okay. Well, we can probably answer it uh, perhaps in both, but you want to take a first stab at this one? Yeah. My first thought when I read this question was, I think it's the opposite of that. I think you don't decide faster than normal. In a way, you almost want to delay the decision as long as possible. You know, we've had hashtag delay the decision since Eldraine, I think, right? Mm-hmm. When there was all 15 color pairs and you were really trying to you know, find which of those 15 decks you wanted to slot in. Mm-hmm. I think so in a highly synergistic format, there's two ways it goes. One, like you take flyer. Like, so for example, let's talk Zendikar Rising. Do we have to? Yeah, we do. <laughs> let's okay. say you start with a good clerics card. You know, you start with a black, white, gold card and then clerics is open. It's easy, right? But if you start with a clerics card and you get pushed off of clerics, you also then need to be really flexible to try to find the open lane. And maybe you start open and you settle into a lane. But ultimately, I think in those highly synergistic formats, you don't want to be fighting with people over whatever the best thing, quote unquote, is. Or an arena cube, for example, you know, like mono red's a highly synergistic deck, you could say. Am I supposed to force that from the start? Well, if somebody else is cutting you off red, 
No, I think you want to read that that seat is open for you and then do your thing from there. I think Cube is sort of unique in that respect. I've been having a few coaching sessions this past week where folks wanted to take a dive into Cube. And that's sort of tough, I think, because Cube is sort of the poster child for drafting with preferences. You know, I think out of any pack, you can just be like, well, there's like four or five cards you could make an argument for depending on what you wanted to do or what you thought was the most powerful thing to do or what you thought you were best at doing. I think Cube in, in particular lets you do both of those things. You can sort of say, I want to do this. I want to do mono red, or I want to do mono black or the black attrition deck, or I want to do blue white control. And most of the time, if you set out to do that, you can probably do that if you want to, or you can also just sort of bob and weave and see what's open or see what powerful things you're seeing a little later and also go down that route and let that dictate what you do. Right. And as far as the, when would you switch plans? I I would switch plans as soon as I feel like I'm getting cut. And, you know, we've talked a lot about, maybe not us, but limited resources and other folks have talked about, you know, the idea of using your intuition versus like critically thinking through everything. And for me, a lot of getting cut after I've done 30 or 40 drafts is just a feeling that I get like around pick five or pick six. And I usually listen to that feeling and more, the more times that I do listen to that feeling, I think the better it works out for me generally, which is not like a super helpful answer, but that's, that's how I go about it personally. Just to, to tack on to that real, real quick, I think the thing that I use, you know, when folks, when I'm drafting and folks in chat are telling me this color seems open or this color seems cut or whatever, my baseline or the, the heuristic I go to is I check my Rolodex of what are my top three commons in that color and have I seen them? You know, like I was doing a draft the other day with a student and white quote unquote was open in our Zendikar draft. But we weren't seeing Shepherd of Heroes, Core Celebrant, or Tazim Raptor. We were seeing like a bunch of junk. And sometimes quantity over quality can be a signal. But more often than not, I want to let those premier commons dictate things more to me than just seeing like a wash of cards that I think are super replaceable. Absolutely. Next question is coming from the real K-Mob. Kevin, if each of you could change one fundamental thing about MTG, what would it be? Could be as big or as small as you wish. I mean, I think this, this answer is pretty easy for me. I would like some high stakes limited tournaments. Ooh, that's a good answer. Yeah, I just like I re getting to do the little streamer showdowns, I think is super fun, even when they're for no stakes, you know, especially we we talked about the Lords versus resources showdown like that was for no stakes and everyone got super invested in that. So I think that, you know, it's proven that there's an audience for that. And I wish that Watsi would hop on board a little bit more. Yeah, that's a great answer. Looking forward to potentially arena limited opens in 2021. Yeah, I mean, just GPs coming back honestly would be great as well. You know, if COVID cooperates and we can go play some live limited tournament magic. It felt so bad. Like 2020, I was starting to gear up after GP New Jersey. I was like, I want to go to more of these. You know, you, me and Alex were planning to do the team sealed in Seattle, which was in May. And uh, yeah, just didn't pan out. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to doing GPs again as well. I was thinking more design wise. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I was thinking, you know, the, the obvious answer is get rid of Hexproof. But I think it, it really is get rid of Hexproof for me and bring back Shroud. <laughs> it's a way to keep it around. But Shroud is so much more fair because you can't suit up your creature with a lifelink aura or whatever. So lock it in my answer, Axe Hexproof. But MTG is great. It's close to perfect. I don't know. I, yeah, I think I'd say just get rid of Hexproof and don't bring back Shroud. <laughs> Shroud... I think Shroud is more confusing. Like to newer players, you can't interact with your own stuff. That's so weird. Yeah, but it's more fair. 
It's more fair. It's definitely balanced. I agree. All right. Uh, we got a question from Discord from Heaviside Brews asked, if either of you were given the opportunity, would you work at Watsy on limited play design? In a heartbeat. Boom, baby. Watsy talent scouts, if you're out there live on Twitch right now, <laughs> hook me up. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately the answer is no for me just for like life reasons. You know, I've like moved around a lot. I live in Chicago, New York. I now live in Pittsburgh. Picking up my life and moving to Seattle does not seem like a great move. If I could do it remotely, absolutely. That sounds like an awesome job. But I really like my life. I like getting to do content. Like, you know, Emma Handy just got hired by Watsi Play Design and sort of watching her have to be like, I can only do this content creation stuff for so long. So if you want me on your podcast or I'm going to try and get some streams in, I was like, that's really like leaving behind a huge chapter of her life, you know? Yeah, that's true. I was just callously throwing you to the, the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very true. I see where I stand for sure. Watsi calls you up and uh, yeah. Throw me to the wind. That's fair. I mean, but I'm in a different place than you. I mean, I'm single. I have not moved around a lot. It, I, it would be very easy for me to pick up my my folding table here <laughs> and, and move out to Seattle. <laughs> uh, that's very true. Next question comes from Sunset in a Cup. Hey, Ethan and Ben. Hope you're both doing well. Like for many people, 2020 has been a less than stellar year for me, but looking forward to new Lords of Limited episodes every week has made it much more tolerable. My question is for both of you. What has been your favorite music that has come out this year? Thank you for the great content. And here's to a fantastic 2021. I would normally not have a good answer for this question, but I have a great answer for this. So one of the bands I discovered this year is called Mr. Wives. And before all the DMCA stuff, I was listening to them a lot on stream. Um, And then at the end of the year, you know, Spotify does their little wrap up thing for you. Sometimes they can, you know, they'll tell you who your like top listened to artists were. So that was my most listened to artist. And I was also in like the 0.05% top of people who listen to them. So I'm like their biggest Spotify fan, <laughs> fan basically. And then one of our uh, Twitch viewers got me this gift uh, for the end of the year, which was a signed record of their album that they released this year in 2020, which was an insanely cool gift. So if you haven't listened to Mr. Wives, highly recommend them. That is awesome. I unfortunately, as the band director of the podcast, have no answer here because I don't listen to music a lot and I don't listen to newer music when I listen. So for example, my Spotify most listened to was James Taylor. I'm pretty sure I was supposed to have been born in like the 1960s and grown (laughs) up in the 80s. But yeah, so I I literally don't I couldn't tell you a new artist that came out this year. I do enjoy music a lot. Um, My favorite artist, I think would probably be Nickel Creek and they're fairly new -er, but definitely not 2021 new. I don't think there's any shame in James Taylor being your number one listen to artist. James Taylor is awesome. No shame at all. Yeah. Jim Dement asks, at what point does a splash become a three color deck? Thanks for all the great content this year. I have a very hard and fast by the numbers answer here. Okay. So I think one card, three sources, you're still splashing. Two cards, four sources, you're still splashing. As soon as you get to three cards and wanting five sources, you are no longer a splash and you are into pile territory. Now, can it still work out? Yes, but I think you're no longer splashing. So, I mean, we talk about this a lot. I talk about this a lot because I splash a a lot on stream, I think, and I, I... You know, people perhaps get the wrong idea about building mana bases or whatever. I do it. I try and do it responsibly when I'm messing around with a bunch of colors. The the thing you have to remember is, is that it's always a risk, right? Not already two color mana bases in limited are shaky, right? A nine, eight mana base, a 10, seven mana base sometimes just doesn't work out. So when you're adding in other sources for a card, you have to understand that you're okay. So is the card I'm splashing or the cards I'm splashing powerful enough? 
to warrant this risk, right? For the times when you draw that card and can't cast it or draw the other colors of mana and that messes up with being able to cast the other stuff in your hand. So this risk that you're taking on, you have to make sure that the power that you're gaining from the cards you're splashing mitigates that risk for the times when it does work out. So either the cards that you're splashing are just incredibly powerful on their own, or they're shoring up a hole in your deck that you really need to shore up. Like mainly I would think removal, right? If you're just like, I don't have the thing, I need to splash this unconditional removal spell or whatever, fine. I think you could make an argument for that. Maybe like unlicensed disintegration in a red green deck in Kaladesh Remastered, right? So you it's a single black pip, but you really need that like I kill this thing dead style of card type of deal. Well, that's going to be more the case in sealed too when you find yourself sure. in that situation, right? Because you have the ability to affect getting those cards during the draft portion and knowing what you're missing and what you need to prioritize over other cards. So like the the splashing for a removal spell I find happens much more in a sealed pool where you know you're supposed to be blue white because you got some bombs and blue white but you have no interaction. Mm-hmm. So maybe you need to stretch your mana for, you know, a red burn spell or a black, you know, kill anything spell, that sort of thing. Right. And then we're getting a follow-up question here in chat about how does double pip factor into that? And I think you and I are both on the firm decision of double pip is not, you're not splashing that, right? You need whatever, six sources minimum probably for a, a double pipped splash, if we're, if we're calling it a splash. I mean, that's just your third color at that point. Yes. And I think the exception of that was in the Gift of Paradise Oasis Ritualist era where you could have one card give you two sources of mana. And if you got three of those cards, then you could splash something like Glorybringer. But that is the exception rather than the rarity as far as formats go. Right. We're not seeing that a lot. Like we saw that in Hour of Devastation or Amonkhet Remastered rather, but we have not really seen that in a new set in a few years. Next question comes from Emery waterhouse what are some of the most common blind spots you identify during your coaching sessions in other words what habits do you find yourself pointing out to students that they were not self-aware as something that he or she should be working on i see what you're doing here emory you're trying to get a free coaching session right now <laughs> <laughs> just try i was like well what's the what's the thing that comes up the most and let me take it no uh for, for real I, I think that the the number one thing for me is that folks don't have a baseline for how to read signals Like they have an idea of like, this draft didn't go well for me, or I got off the rails somehow, but what happened? And it stems from you don't have a pick order or a tier list in your mind. And so you don't have this like, you know, reasons versus rewards perhaps is the the way to package it now of like, these are the cards worth jumping ship for or speculating on, or these are the cards that are not worth like taking a rabid bite as your first green card, I would not say is something you want to be doing in Zendikar Rising, for example, like the things of checking in with these are my top commons in the color, and I'm not seeing those. So I don't need to move into the color or I'm seeing this, you know, good payoff build around B style card, uncommon late in the pack. Is that worth jumping ship for? Like having those questions already answered for yourself is I think the biggest way to stop drafts from train wrecking. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. I have not done quite as much coaching as you, but I've probably coached, I don't know, five or six different people at this point, some of them multiple times. And I think one of the things that I see most often when I'm doing coaching is that people don't necessarily have a plan when they're coming into their coaching session. And that's one of the things I would like to see change most as a coach. I think people, you know, it feels sometimes more like people just want to hang out for an hour, which is great. And like do a draft and, you know, maybe you get a game or two in during that hour. But there's not like a a weakness that they've identified that where, you know, hey, I want to work on card evaluation or, hey, I want to work on, you know, when I start down a color and I get cut. Like, how can I change that? Like, if somebody told me ahead of time, I want to work on thing X in a coaching session, 
I would, you know, come prepared with draft logs or I would come prepared with a plan for them. But a lot of times people don't have either they haven't thought to maybe take that approach to it or they haven't done the preparation. Maybe they don't want to do that sort of preparation. They just want to hang out. And that's totally fine. But for example, like for me, you know, I've taken a lot of lessons and things in my life, you know, clarinet, saxophone, tennis, table tennis. And, you know, the coach isn't just like, hey, let's play some tennis. And we like hit back and forth. And that's my lesson. And that's kind of what MTG coaching sessions feel like. You know, the person shows up and we play some games and we do a draft. Whereas, you know, in tennis, I show up and I say, I want to work on my backhand. And we drill my backhand and we're dialing in on that one aspect of my tennis game. I wish MTG coaching for me and for my students was a little more like that. Yeah, I agree. It reminds me of when I would do test prep tutoring and like it was clear that the students weren't doing stuff in between our sessions. So I'm like, you're not, your score isn't going to go up in the hour or two hours that we work together each week. You're, you have to like be putting in some reps off stream. And so when people come to the coaching sessions, they're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't play that much this week or this month or whatever. I'm like, well, I, I can only do so much in this hour. You know, you have to start putting the things into practice yourself. Right. Absolutely. And I do think, you know, as far as a more specific answer to the question here, I would say it's people's ability to navigate a draft that is difficult, like people being comfortable, like I'm fine, nine picks in whatever, if I have five different colors and, you know, two cards of four of those colors, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I trust that I'm going to get there. And I feel like a lot of the students that I've worked with would be panicked about being in that position in a draft and feel like they're train wrecking. And I just so that's how some drafts go. And I think that's what you need to do to navigate that draft successfully. Yeah, for sure. Atel639 asks, my question is, Manowar is mentioned frequently with Marshall from LR. Do you and Ethan have a favorite card like that? I think overarchingly for both of us, it's probably balance, which is crazy because that happened independent of us meeting each other. Right. Would you say that's fair? I think that's fair in terms of like an uh, like a single card. But my answer to this in terms of, you know, like Marshall likes the Man of War style card. So any sort of blue creature that ETBs and bounces something is sort of his bread and butter. Um, I don't know, I even know how much he like actually feels that anymore. That just feels like it's on brand for him at this point. And I think for us, it's the glue card. So if we think of Golden Egg or Forbidden Friendship or Stonework Pack Beast, I think that's the style of card that's like, our favorite from each set. Right. For me, it tends to be a common that's not one of the top commons, but is still a very good common. And I think it's different format to format and it's different styles of cards too, right? Mm-hmm. I think it was Squire's Devotion in Rivals of Ixalan, or it was Forbidden Friendship in Akoria. It was Golden Egg in Throne of Eldraine. I tend to latch on to one card per format or one or two cards per format. Next question comes from DJ Snugs. I have a question for your Q&A episode. What happened to the map podcast? (laughs) I was listening to an old Lords of Limited episode a while back and it was referenced. I tried looking it up and couldn't find anything. What's the backstory? I just first want to say RIP map podcast. Yeah. Okay. So for folks who don't know, the map podcast was the magic arena (laughs) podcast. It was a little spinoff from us. So basically, so here's what happened. So we were approached by a uh, podcast startup company um, that was starting a like podcast network that was going to be behind a, a paywall. Like you subscribe to the whole thing and then you, you get access to all the shows they represent and they wanted us to do a magic podcast. And so we did, we were like, and this was, this was, oh my gosh, how, almost two years ago, like spring of 2019. It was a while ago. Yeah. And so we, we released a few episodes there and there were just some, some creative differences, right? Like our stuff felt very time sensitive in terms of when we were releasing it. Like, you know, we were talking about the mythic championship one time and then they like didn't release the episode until like after it happened 
happened and we were like trying to do predictions of what was going to happen at the mythic championship and obviously i'm sure like they were under pressure monetarily from their investors or whatever but it just wasn't quite a good fit for us and them so so we only did a handful of episodes and then and then we parted ways i do think that idea for a podcast was a good idea though and i still think there is not quite a podcast like that so the intent behind the podcast was it was going to be a podcast dedicated to everything magic arena like we did some standard stuff we were doing limited and we wanted it to be more of a back to basics style limited podcast for people that were just finding arena as new magic players that was essentially our target audience right Um, and we had like a i remember doing a what's the brew section like where i would find some sweet deck and spend some wild cards and play some sweet standard deck that was not super competitive but maybe you know uh, a little more on the creative side yeah i think bringing our like you know we we have a pretty focused as as folks will see from from how you know this live episode goes versus like it being edited for when we release the episode on our podcast feed like we have a pretty streamlined approach to our content and we really want the episode to be like jam-packed with as much info as possible and so we were trying to like bring that to bear to a more yeah as you said like a, a more a, to a newer listener or to a newer magic player approach to to magic arena so that's the map r.i.p all right eviscerous asks what is your favorite thing about your co-host it's a deep question how deep are we this is a hard one to answer I'll, i'll go first okay so i've thought about this one a lot you know we had these some of these questions ahead of time some of the rolling in as we record the episode and i saw this one and i was like wow that's an intense question and so here's my my short, succinct answer, and then I'm going to expound on it a little bit. So my my short to the point answer is my favorite thing about Ethan is that he just sort of gets it um, like on whatever it is like he understands. He's super perceptive. And I think as a result of that, there are a number of things that I love about Ethan, one of which is, you know, we work together really well because he understands what's going on in my life. He understands what's going on in his life. He has his own stuff together. We both have really high standards for ourselves. We're similar people, similar backgrounds. But all of that other stuff gets boiled into like Ethan just understands things and he understands what needs to happen to make them work. He's nice. He's kind. He cares about people. I cannot say enough good things about him. And short answer to sum up all of that is that he gets it. That's a really that's not fair. I should I should have gone first, I think. <laughs> I don't know if I can follow that up because I've just been stumped by this question. I mean, not stumped in that I I like many things about Ben, but how to like package it neatly. Um I think my favorite thing about Ben is his temperament. Um he's like incredibly even-keeled. I mean, even the times when he like comes to me, you know, I I feel like I feel like Ben and I have a relationship where I'm the only person who gets to see Ben be mean <laughs> and Ben's the only person who gets to see me be nice, you know? Um, but like, <laughs> that's think, not true. No, it's not true. But I think like Ben's so even keeled. He's so easygoing. And that makes, I mean, like I, we, we talk about this a lot, but our, our working relationship is incredibly lucky considering we've like only met a handful of times in person. We like decided to do this show together without having met, without having really ever talked at all. You know, we like had our first like Skype phone conversation after we sort of decided we were going to do this and then planned out what we wanted the, the show to be about. So we're just incredibly lucky in that respect. But I think that comes from, you know, Ben just having this very cool, calm, collected way about him. You know, we never argue really. Like anytime there's any sort of conflict, it just like comes to the surface immediately. We're both like very you know, easygoing. He's a really good listener. He's always like quick to own up to things. Like, so I will package that in that I think Ben's temperament is the thing I like the most about him. I appreciate it. And I think that goes to we're both very self-aware people and we're both very clear communicators, which is why a lot of that has worked. 
and I think unless I'll speak for myself, very conflict averse. Like I, I don't like to argue with people. <laughs> Man, that may come as a shock to some folks, but <laughs> I, I really like, especially in a working relationship, I just like really don't want to argue about things very much. I agree. All right. Next up, Spencer Fallowar says, once again, thank you both for the week in and week out. Awesome content. Every show from a focus production performance standpoint is so tight. How scripted versus off the cuff is the material compared to the numerous other MTG podcasts I listen to, Lords of Unloaded Ranks, tier one in that respect. Yeah. So funny, we were talking about this just before the show. Because so in our show notes, you know, at the top of them, we put the Patreon thing and we type out, you know, who the new patrons are to shout them out. And then we put the CFB ad read below. And we you, you were hearkening back to, you know, way back in the day, we used to put a B and an E next to our talking points in the show notes so that like we wouldn't talk over each other. We would like part of our pre show ritual was to like assign the points in our show notes to each person. Now, luckily, I think we've developed a good enough rapport and a good enough back and forth flow that we don't need to do that anymore. But that sort of like maybe gives you an idea of how like OCD we used to be. Yeah, I think that was more for my benefit than it was for your benefit, just to make me feel more comfortable. I think you're of the two of us much better thinking on your feet and reacting to things live. I mean, obviously, you have acting training. So that certainly helps. But I think the other thing is, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time together at this point. I think, you know, if you want to develop chemistry, people always ask us about chemistry. It helps that we're similar, I mm -hmm. think, from a default standpoint. But spending 15 hours together, like <laughs> streaming together, we <laughs> yeah. used to do that as uh, rewards for these treasure hunts that we had. And I think, you know, just the amount of time you and I have spent playing Magic the Gathering together, you know, gives you a lot of rapport with a person. Yeah. And I think in terms of like the production quality that this person is talking about, I don't know why we feel this way or why we always did it this way, but we've just always approached the podcast. Like, I mean, it's sort of shocking that we're doing this live now, but the fact that we, the reason we don't do this, the reason we don't, you know, record it with webcams and then post to YouTube every week is because like, I think the podcast is an, at one, it's an oral medium. And I don't think it's a live medium in my mind. Like we give ourselves, as people are seeing right now, we give ourselves the permission to stop and start sentences and then cut that out uh, in, in the editing process. Um, just so the show is super tight. We really try and have detailed show notes. You know, it's not like scripted in a sense, but you know, our, our patrons who get access to the show notes do see week in and week out that we're writing Google Docs that are three, four, five pages long. And we're really thinking through what that content is because we're producing the show that we want to listen to. And what I want to listen to is that like tight, all killer, no filler style content. Absolutely. Argon Townick asks, what is your favorite food to make and favorite food to eat? All right, Mr. Crockpot, what do you, what do you got for us? I mean, favorite food to make is nothing. I don't <laughs> enjoy the process of preparing food. It's just time consuming. I think of the, if I were forced to make something of the things I would want to make, it would probably be brownies like as far as the effort required versus the payout that you get after the effort they're pretty low effort high reward foods like mm -hmm. prepackaged brownies and you just put some water some some cooking oil vegetable oil and an egg in there and you're ready to go favorite food to eat buttered noodles parmesan crusted chicken from noodles and company not close uh favorite food to make i've been getting really into grilling this year i have a charcoal grill and i've been super excited to like dive into figuring out how to like you know get get the coals to a certain temperature you know i like grilled my turkey for thanksgiving this year so i definitely think like grilling meats is my favorite thing to do right now and favorite food to eat it's kind of basic but i think like my desert island food is a hamburger what yeah like i think like if i had to think about the the thing that i always like want to get 
Like if I'm like, oh, I want like a really good burger and fries. That's like the, the thing I would want like day in and day out, I think. But it's so bad for you. I am shocked. If we were on like some sort of couples TV show, I would never have guessed that. But like what food would you have guessed? I would have guessed, I think like steak, red wine, like some sort of fancy asparagus and like some overly snobby like way to prepare potatoes. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just sort of reducing that. We're still, we still got red, red meat and carbs there. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Tristan Weber. Hi, Ben and Ethan. What do you two do to stay positive during low points and rough patches? I love how positive and supportive you and your community are. I wanted to know if you have any strategies or framings you use to help facilitate that. I, f- I feel bad, but I don't really. I mean, I, I'm just like, I feel generally happy. <laughs> like most days, like I, I, don't, I wake up and I'm happy. Like I like my life. I like my house. I love my wife very much. I get to do what I love every day. I have a very good friend as my business partner. Like I don't, there's not a lot that makes me bummed out even in, in COVID times. You know, I don't, I feel like I don't feel lucky that I don't have to work at that. Yeah. My answer is going to be a little bit different than that. (laughs) I mean, I do. I think, you know, the, what, for what Ethan said, you know, the persona that people see when I'm streaming is me. I mean, you, you can't stream and not be yourself. I mean, that is me, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't, let people see when I am, you know, struggling or have had a bad day or whatever. And it does come through. There's times if I if I tilt, it's because I've had a rough day at school when I'm streaming. Mm. So for me, I tend to reach out to people, you know, I'll I'll vent to Ethan, I'll vent to other people that I'm that I'm close with. And I think it's really important to have, you know, close friends that you can count on like that. And as far as staying positive, I'm very much a goal oriented person. So you know, if I'm struggling with something or if I'm unhappy, I think, you know, what do I want to do to you know, fix this? How can I fix this? Try to identify a solution to the problem and then figure out steps to work towards that. That's That tends to be how I get through rough patches. And if it's MTG related, I think just, you know, that that's more of a broader life uh, answer to the question. But if it's MTG related, I think it would be, you know, just understanding that there's a lot of variance in the game and trusting that I'm good at the game. And, you know, maybe revisiting some fundamentals, you know, talking with Ethan, other people I respect to make sure that I'm in the right place in the format. And if I am, just keep trucking along and doing what I'm doing and trusting that it's going to turn around. Yeah. Next up, Clapper and Gill asks, your arena cubing and settled into mono red. Early in pack two, do you take Glorybringer or Torbrin? Oh, Glorybringer all day, baby. Really? Yeah, I think Glorybringer is a much more powerful card than Torbrin. I could I could take or leave Torbrin in a mono red deck. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think my answer is Torbrin here. And in parentheses, they have Torbrin wield. So I was definitely in the right deck. So it sounds like they took Glorybringer and then got Torbrin. So didn't actually have to make this this decision. So I guess my my answer to this question is just a little longer because I feel like it's interesting in terms of I feel like in cube especially, but you know, in limited sets in general, folks get into this idea of won't this card wheel? question mark, like this slightly weaker card or whatever, you know, if you're in mono red and you take Glorybringer as just a more inherently powerful card, if you assume you're the only mono red drafter at the table, no one else should want Torbrin, right? It, it should wheel. Yeah, theoretically. But like if you think, and it sounds like Ben doesn't, and maybe I do, if you think Torbrin is a more important piece to your deck, then I think that risk of Torbrin not wheeling is kind of a detriment. You know, we were talking about this a little bit the other day when you hopped into my stream and we got a second pick Wilderness Reclamation. And someone was like, you know, according to 17 lands, Wilderness Rec is, it wheels a lot of the time. And my argument to that is, yeah, so it, it 
probably wields. But if we then spend, if we pass on Wilderness Wreck there, spend the next eight picks building around Wilderness Reclamation, assuming it's going to wheel or making picks or concession picks to, well, this card is going to go better with Wilderness Wreck, and then it doesn't wheel, that's such a disaster. Yes, that is the worst possible scenario. I think you just take the card when you want it, if it's the right card for your deck. Right. I just think in this situation, I feel like Glorybringer adds more to your win rate in a mono red deck than Torbrun does. There's like the list of fours I would want ahead of Torbrun are like Hellrider, Experimental mm-hmm. Frenzy. I mean, yeah. I could rattle off a bunch of cards I'd rather have in a mono red deck than Torbrun. Yeah, probably Phoenix as well. Yeah, baby. Yeah. All right. Makes sense. Mossy Beard wants to know, it's no secret that neither of you are pet people, but if you were forced to, which animal across magic would you want as a pet in real life? Uh, can you go? Do you want to go first? I will go first. I mean, I think as far as normal pets, you know, dogs versus cats, I would definitely want a dog. We always had a dog when I was growing up. If we were dreaming big, the whole magic universe would definitely be a dragon. Like, you know, the series by Anne McCaffrey is an old series, Dragon Riders of Pern, or, you know, books of that genre, like the idea of bonding with a dragon and that sort of thing would be super awesome. And I would love to live in that world. Oh, chat's giving me the really good answers here. So yeah, I am not a pet person. So first of all, Sunlock is saying whichever one is most like Noodle, which is his dog, which is like the pet I like the most in my life. I don't know which that would be. So then my my answers are someone says, I hear Ethan has eight cats. So I guess we could say, was it Charmed Stray from War of the Spark, where I drafted eight of those? But I think really the answer, especially off the heels of Arena Cube, is Luris would be my the pet that I would want. Ooh, spicy. All right, Scotty Arch 18 asks, is there any MTG art that has really captivated you? You there's a new one that just came out that you're obsessed with, right? Yeah, Jeweled Lotus, the commander card was incredible. I was so shocked at how excited you were about that art. I when I saw it, I was like, "Oh my god, that card is awesome. The art was awesome, the concept behind it for commander. So it's essentially Black Lotus, but you can only spend the mana on your commander or commander tax. I just thought that card was unreal and I snap ordered a print of it and I actually have a print of it in my house uh, right now. But I think other than that, you know, just all the old school magic art, anytime I see old stuff just gives me a lot of nostalgia from my childhood um, and growing up loving magic. So I would say any any old school art in addition to that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, balance is hanging on my wall right now, courtesy of Ben. And so I think that probably takes the cake for me. I also have Sailor of Means. Like, I think just like cards that either old cards like nostalgia or cards that like really resonated with me, like Forbidden Friendship. I really like that art now. Like, I think things that that have a lot of meaning for me in the game or nostalgia are, are things that speak to me a lot. It's it's really interesting. Our art is not something I think that either of us really gravitate towards in the game. And I think especially seeing Arena sort of changed this, but when I was playing only on MTGO, seeing the like very small art stuff, I feel like I got in my mind like this is an image of like a worm, but then like up close, I'm like, oh, this isn't a worm at all. Like I just, the small <laughs> pixel, I just sort of like shortcut to it looks like this thing. And then people will point out, oh, you know, it's actually blah. And then I have to zoom in and see, oh yeah, it actually is, you know, so the, the art is not, not something that generally speaks to me. Yep. I agree. Lemon flavored tea wants to know if you had to do a podcast about any other topic or game, what would it be? Uh, I guess if it was game, I would choose poker. And I would definitely want to, uh, not that I'm in any way a position to be an expert, but I think I could do like a good host expert dynamic in poker and have like good, you know, leading questions for whoever my co-host was. Um, And maybe other topic, like I really like cooking. 
And so I could, I could maybe see doing a food podcast, but I don't know how you do that. Like talking about recipes sounds kind of boring. So I don't know. I don't know what that would be like, but maybe that would be another topic I could talk about. Visual descriptions while you're cooking. You added the spice and you could hear the sizzle. <laughs> yeah, a, lots, little, a little ASMR. Lots podcast. of sizzling sound effects, sir. <laughs> Mine would be gaming Hearthstone Battlegrounds. That's my current love affair uh, that I'm having on the side with Magic the Gathering. I would really enjoy, I think, doing a Hearthstone Battlegrounds podcast. And I think I could do a good job teaching the game and teaching the strategy. Um, A topic outside of gaming, I think it would probably be table tennis. I would really enjoy doing a podcast where I interviewed people that were good at table tennis, I think. Or people that were good at anything. It's just interesting to talk to people that are at the top of their field. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things, I mean, we don't do guest episodes very often, but I do think one of the things that you and I are good at when we do have guests on is the interview process. Like, I think we have a really good back and forth dynamic in terms of like leading questions or follow up questions, that sort of thing. So I think that that sort of skill, I think we've developed and I really think you would be a good interviewer in a sort of just like who's the best at style podcast or whatever. Yeah, that'd be cool. Biz 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 asks, how has producing content for the podcast influenced the way in which you look at and evaluate cards from a new set? Do you look for different things now? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I've grown in leaps and bounds as a magic player as a result of trying to teach new limited formats to people. I think I very much feel like we have a streamlined process at this point. You know, when I'm looking at the spoilers, I'm trying to identify what I think, you know, those top three commons are. If it's difficult, you know, and maybe I've got a list of five or six that are in the running immediately that first week when I'm playing games, I'm trying to get that solidified down. And, you know, I have hypotheses about, you know, if the format is this, I think this card's going to be a top common. If the format ends up playing out this way, I think this other card's going to be a top common for these reasons. So setting those hypotheses out during spoiler season, testing them out during that first week, talking to you, talking to Alex. I just think we have a really efficient process at this point for solving formats. Yeah. I, you know, just graduating from having my six tabs open of LSV's written set review on Channel Fireball when I fire <laughs> up my first draft to like, I've already done a full set review with Alex. I've already graded all the cards. I've already thought about my top commons. I've already argued with Ben about some cards, like all of that as preparation. By the time I open my first pack, I feel like I've drafted the set already. I like know all the cards, which is a, a huge difference from before. And I get, get so wrapped up in that, that Twitch chat sort of like, can you slow down in the draft? Can you like hover over the cards? Not all of us have like read over these for days already. And I forget that because I'm so entrenched in it now. So it definitely makes me evaluate cards cards differently. It makes me feel more prepared for my first draft of the format, et cetera. Like it's just leaps and bounds different in terms of how I'm approaching stuff. Once you, once you're forced to answer a bunch of questions yourself, rather than look for those answers from other people, it does make a big difference. Next question comes from Glosu Lang. Some questions from me to both of you. First question, what is your favorite MTG color? color pair or combination of colors? And if we're feeling adventurous, why? I think probably blue green is my favorite combo of colors. Like that's generally the home for like splashing around in most limited formats. Like you get, you get fixing and card draw, which are two of the most important things for those like multicolor nonsense decks. And, you know, I feel, I feel like I'm less spiky the the more the years progress and I just want to do nonsensey stuff. And I think Simic is where that generally happens. My favorite color is blue. My favorite color pair is is it 
I think I really enjoy that interactive style that most Is It decks have. That's my succinct answer to that, I think. And the another question from Glosu here is, did you ever think the podcast would get this far? What are some goals you have for the future of the podcast? I mean, I think the, the clear answer for question number one is no. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if when we started, you had told me you by the end of 2020, you'll be sponsored by channelfireball.com. You'll be doing this as like your full-time gig. That would have been crazy. That was not, I mean, we started out wanting the show to be the best it could be. And I think that was evidenced by the amount of work that we would put into it as we've already talked about, but never, never in my wildest dreams did I think that this is where we would be. 100%. I started the podcast as just like, hey, I've got some time. This would be a fun project, you know, and we were both streaming and I, I understood that I was not like a magic celebrity. And I think, you know, we're minor magic celebrities at this point, but, you know, felt like maybe a podcast would add some legitimacy to what we were doing streaming on Twitch rather than the podcast becoming the main thing. And as far as goals for the future of the podcast, I mean, would want to keep growing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, we've got a lot of room as far as like diving into merchandise. We've done some attempts at that, but I don't think any of them have been like wildly successful or our best effort necessarily. Yeah. But mostly continuing to grow our audience and continue to try to figure out how to produce great content that people want, like figure out better ways to teach the game via podcast. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I think you and I have as great strengths for the show is that we both, you know, you are a teacher and I have have dabbled in in one-on-one tutoring. And so I feel like we're both, and I, you know, went to school for talking is a joke that I make a lot, but I think we're, we're both good at you know, there's a separation of you can be the best at the game, I think, and not be good at packaging concepts or not be good at realizing here's the best way to communicate this concept effectively. And I think that's one of the things that we're really good at. And I just want to keep doing that, as you say, like figure out what are the best ways we can produce content that effectively teaches concepts. Boom. One Blaubear asks, how are you going about MTG in paper? Do you have a collection? Do you draft at your local game store? I This has gone less and less as I've dived into Twitch. Yeah. Um, I have not had any interest in diving into MTG in paper really other than the few times we've gone to GPs since I started streaming and we've started the podcast. I loved paper MTG when I was a kid growing up. My favorite thing was pre-releases because even then I w- I knew I was good at limited and I knew I had an edge at pre-releases. You know, I was like the kid end boss or whatever at my LGS and, you know, all the older people didn't want to play me and stuff. And that was a cool feeling as a kid. Um, I do have a collection from when I was growing up and my brothers and I have sort of pooled our collection together a little bit and we have a powered cube minus the, like the actual power and crazy expensive cards. We did uh, proxies of those where we printed out uh, the art for those cards on like, uh, what do you call them? Like decals that you would put on your window or whatever. And we scraped off old foils and not counterfeiting cards. I just saw stun lock in Twitch chat. Anyway, there's a process where you can like strip uh, the art off of old foils with paint thinner. And then you put these decals on it and you essentially have foil proxies on the backs of real cards. So super cool. I have a proxy cube that is almost entirely proxy that is not as not as meticulous as Ben's. It's just I like print out the, the card images and then I sleeve up cards and then just put those things in the sleeve over those cards so it's really janky but it gets the job done we drafted it at uh, gp vegas last year paper magic has never been a big part of my life like when i got back into magic whatever now it's like 10 years ago 
I played, I got back into it playing online. Um, I would go to my LGS. This was when I lived in Chicago. I would go there a couple times. I've gone to an LGS in New York a few times. In, in Pittsburgh, I feel like I had a, a more of a, a paper community. Someone who works at a, a game store is a member of, is one of my subs. And so I've gone there a lot. And I was actually getting into going in to their store like on Tuesdays for these small drafts. That was really fun. But since COVID has hit, I haven't played any paper magic at all. And I don't really miss it. You know, I think part of what you and I, that sort of gathering aspect that people like about playing MTG, we get from streaming, you know, we get from getting to do a podcast together. We're, I feel like I'm connected to a community uh, every day, basically. Yes, I agree 100%. Think Twice wants to know, what's your most common mistake playing? That is an easy one for me. And I think it's something you're really good at. And for me, it's just not being aware of the board state in its entirety. My number one mistakes come from when I have decided in my head that something's true about the game based on a board state, you know, whatever that is, and then something happens to the board state that makes that thing that I've locked in my head as true, not true anymore. And I don't reevaluate based on how the board state has changed. But I think, you know, as a result of that, and a lot of times that happens because I'm thinking about big picture stuff in the game. And I do think thinking about big picture stuff is one of the things I'm best at planning ahead. I mean, the easy answer here for me is missing lethal. And sometimes it doesn't bite me in the butt and sometimes it does. Um, But I'm just like real. There are definitely times where I like could make an all out attack or whatever. I don't quite do the math correctly or I'm a little too um, conservative in my gameplay, but I think that's definitely the the biggest flaw for me. I mean, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of gameplay stuff. I feel like dra- drafting. I feel like I can draft with the best of them, but gameplay stuff. There's there's definitely a lot of leaks that I have. Big B Smalls asks, bouncing off of Ben's coaching comments, is there anything we can do to get better at self evaluation? If you're not winning, it can be hard to understand why. That's one of the hardest things to teach, and I think you know the idea of metacognition, thinking about your thinking, or what questions should you be asking yourself is how you're going to get better at self-evaluation and just literally trying to do that, like asking yourself, whatever the case may be, um, you know, let's say drafting. Did I pivot when I was able to pivot? Did I, you know, give myself all of my outs to, you know, go into multiple color pairs? Like trying to, you know, get those things from your coach. You know, maybe that is your first coaching session and your coach just watches you draft and has you explain your thought process and doesn't tell you anything at all. And then sort of, you know, you have a diagnosis session and then they give you questions to be asking yourself and forcing you to think about it. You know, if I'm going to draw a parallel to music, one of the hardest things to teach is rhythm and reading rhythms and figuring out rhythms correctly for yourselves for a student. And it starts with just using a metronome. And I literally have a chart that's like called the metronome food chain. And the bottom is like ranges from this little sea anemone thing with like thought bubbles. And the top of the food chain is a shark. And then like in between there are like differently sized fishes on this chart. And the first one is I own a metronome. That's like base level. Have you made the investment to download a metronome on your phone or whatever? And then, you know, one of the fishes in the middle is like, I try to use my metronome, but I can't quite stay with the beat. And then, you know, the biggest fish before you're a shark is I use my metronome and I understand, you know, which note's supposed to be on the click and I can make that note be on the click, but I'm not even in between the clicks. And then the the biggest shark is, you know, the top of the food chain is I use my metronome, I make the note that's supposed to be on the click on the click and I play evenly in between the beats. So just, you know, your coach coming up with that sort of stuff for you after maybe a diagnostic session could be really good. But I think ultimately, it comes down to you 
and trying to do the thing. The thing that I try and put into practice for myself and I think is a good thing for anyone trying to improve at magic is just because I think, you know, there's a lot of variance in the game of magic, right? The best players only have like whatever, 65% win rate, 70% win rates against the best. So, you know, there's a lot of variance inherent in that. So the thing I think you can get tripped up on is, well, was this just variance? Did I get screwed, whatever? Or was there something I could have done? And I think the thing to do is just always assume that stuff is in your control, right? So if you're getting mana screwed, you know, I, I, we talk about this episode a lot, but making your own luck episode, episode 23 of our podcast, I think is one of our best still even three plus years deep into making content. Um, and, you know, we talk a lot about these points in that episode, but, you know, if you're getting mana screwed or flooded, are you building your mana bases incorrectly? Are you adding too many lands when you don't have mana sinks, etc.? So just assuming that things are under your control or are, are things you can fix is better than just chalking stuff up or, or trying to chalk stuff up to luck or variance. Next question comes from Klaus Rayner. Question is, you've probably answered this, but all-time favorite draft format. I think it's Throne of Eldraine for me, if we're talking like non-masters, non-cube sets. I think for me, all-time, probably Cons of Tarkir, but since we've been creating content, would be Ikoria, and it would be tough. I would have to go through the process of, so I think actually my honest answer is probably Ikoria, but that's because the podcast is attached to it mm -hmm. so if i could go back and like have the podcast during triple cons i think it would probably be triple cons but it's very close between those two squirp asks do you ever listen to podcasts your own or others faster than 1x speed do you have any opinions about listening speed here's a question i have for you ben so you know when we started the podcast ben was doing all the editing for our shows then we were like switching off for a time and now i am primarily doing all the editing while he's you know a busy teaching boy when i wasn't editing i listened listened to the episodes. Do you ever listen to our episodes? I have listened to two or three since you've started editing, but that's it. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I was curious. I never, I never asked you that before. So yeah, I don't listen to podcasts faster than 1x speed, but I also am not listening to that many podcasts anymore. As I think most folks, like I think most podcast listenership is probably down overall in COVID times, which is kind of weird because like everyone's at home, but podcasting isn't an idle thing, right? I would always, I would listen to the podcast when I went to the gym or if I had to commute somewhere or whatever. Um, but it's, it's rare that I have time where I'm just like doing something else and want, want a podcast to listen to. Right. I also never listen faster than one time speed. Listening to a podcast for me is a very enjoyable process and I wouldn't want it to go faster. Like the podcast I listen to, I really like, and I, you know, have you know, essentially the podcast in my rotation for the amount of time that I have. And I wouldn't want it to feel like well, I've got to get through this podcast so I can listen to another podcast. I It's a really it's like sitting down to watch a television show or something for me. I wouldn't want to watch the television show on 1.5 times speed, you know? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but as far as opinions about listening speed, one time I've told this story on stream before, I accidentally somehow turned limited resources on 0.5 times speed, like half speed. And I was listening and Marsh, both Marshall and Luis sounded drunk. And I was like, oh my God, this is so unprofessional. I can't believe they're drunk right now. And I was like getting ready to email like limited resources and be like, look, you know, I love you guys, but I can't condone this. And then I finally realized that I was listening on halftime speed. And then, and then I was like, oh, whew, okay. Thank, thank God. <laughs> I'm dying. I'm dead right now. That's so funny. Apple juice with the real deep cut throwback. What happened to the game show bits that were early in the episodes? You remember that? You remember those, the name I, that card? 
I think it was just once. I think we did it once and then we cut it. We did it once and I was pushing pretty hard for it and we did it and it was fine. And then I was like, are we going to keep doing this? And I think you put your foot down and we're like, no, I don't want to do that. And I think that was a good decision ultimately for the course of the podcast. It was quite a bit of editing work for not that much payoff. And I think not really what we were trying to do with the podcast. You know, we've said we want it to be streamlined. We want it to be teaching. And, you know, I think the funny bits, I do think the great addition of the podcast was when you started editing and you added the outtakes. So for people that maybe don't listen all the way to the end of the episode, um, there are outtakes at the end of the episode after Salty Pretzel's outro music. And everyone watching the live recording right now is just experiencing them in real time. Next up, Daddy Glove wants to know, any chance of Lords of Limited Discord Patreon events, like one time a set draft tourney where the top six get a draft pod with you two, something along those lines, winner could get a coaching session, hire to your Patreon, etc. I think we have talked about that at various times, and it feels hard to select who gets to do that. We've talked about that, I think, as a Patreon reward tier. Um, you know, like you are eligible to do the thing, but it feels hard to implement. But I do like the concept behind it. There's a lot of ideas that we have. And then it's about figuring out what is worth the time investment into those things, you know, in terms of the reward of people enjoying that addition or whatever, utilizing it and and what it asks of us as well. So it's definitely something we thought of and haven't quite figured out a way to implement effectively. But to answer your question, I think, yes, there is a chance of that in the future. Yeah. Dr. Unks asks, what will it take to have more meaningful limited tournaments in 2021? Uh, JD Newland, as a, as a Additional question or similar question, just adding, could there ever be some type of organized tournament between Lowell listeners? This is all sort of, you know, wrapped into, I think, Daddy Glove's question as well. Yeah, I think, you know, we sort of have had Lords of Limited tournaments at the beginning of the coronavirus. We had, you know, Lords of Limited FNM organized through our Discord, which I think was like a huge hit, you know, for the first two, three weeks. And then, you know, with like a lot of things, you know, just the way humans are, things tend to poop out or become less exciting over time. You know, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, if it happens, I think we're only looking to do the Lords of Limited, Limited Resources team draft showdown once a format to keep it feeling special. But I think certainly there is a possibility of that happening. I think people that want that sort of thing don't realize the amount of organizing that goes into an event like that. It's an extraordinary amount of time behind the scenes that, you know, for us, you know, we're sort of in a weird spot in that, you know, I think maybe a lot of people don't know this, but Ethan is the driving force behind the podcast as far as editing and keeping up with questions from people and doing a lot of the coaching and things like that because I have another full-time job. And so anything we want to do like that is ultimately, and I feel guilty about this, but is ultimately limited by me and the amount of time that I have. And so if we were to do something like that, the burden would fall on Ethan and that's not really fair to him. So that's a, the reason that a lot of these sweet idea sort of things haven't come to fruition. It's all me. Hashtag blame Ben. <laughs> wow. Wow. I don't think it's entirely your, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's entirely on you, you know, but I like, you know, I have said a lot in various contexts that like, I don't think I'm a good businessman, you know, like I think the reason our podcast is successful is just be, we are lucky that we are putting out a product that we think is good and people are are interested in that product. And, you know, we're just two nobodies, but we draft a lot and play a lot. And I think we have put ourselves in a position of some sort of authority in the limited community. And that's why we have such a great community of listeners and patrons, et cetera. Um, but I'm not, I don't feel like I'm good at any of that stuff or like, I don't feel motivated. Like I just wake up and I'm just like, I just want to play magic. I just want to play magic and then like put my ideas together for the podcast and then record the podcast and talk about magic and all that like other behind the scenes stuff in terms of perhaps like 
growing our community or like finding other advertisers or whatever, things like that, that would actually be good business moves are things that I am less good at slash less motivated by. So it's not entirely all on you, Ben. I think it's, yeah, both of us, unfortunately, fall into that category. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People are like, when are you going to update your channel points, which takes like five minutes. <laughs> and I just want to stream anytime I sit down and I'm going to do something. Yeah, so. people, yeah, it's just like when people pick sleeves, I'm like, you know, you could just be playing magic right now. <laughs> you don't have to be picking sleeves. You could just already be playing a game. And that's just my addiction speaking quite highly. <laughs> Jay J.D. Newland asks, what life total do you think is a good place to go on the defensive as a general heuristic? I would say in response to that, my immediate reaction is there's not a life total. It's all dependent on the board state. I'm fine being on the offensive at one life. So I don't think I think there's a point, you know, in the flow of the game where, you know, you felt like you're ahead and something's changed. Maybe your opponents played a bomb. Maybe they've played a removal spell on your best creature. But to me, being on the offense or defense has nothing to do with life totals, really. It more has to do with the flow of the game. Yeah, I think that's totally true, right? You can, it can be correct to go on the defensive at 20 life and correct to go on the offensive at one life. I don't, I think that's a really good point that you can have those two polar opposites both be true. So it's really hard to have a heuristic there. I would think about your life total as a resource that you can use to go on the offense or the defensive rather than as a measuring stick for when you're supposed to do it. Next question comes from Filbert. I try to avoid content until I've played with a new set for a few weeks, although I know I'm in the minority on this. Do you guys ever miss that feeling of jumping blind into a new set? Maybe Double Masters was a good example of this since it was spoiled within hours of its release. Yes, I do miss that feeling. Absolutely. And the few times that we get to do it, you know, just jumping into the arena cube fresh was pretty sweet. Uh, jumping into Commander Legends, you know, that was the first time in a long time that I've had the feeling when we recorded that Commander Legends draft video of I don't know what's good here at all. And it was a really it was an unsettling feeling. And it was good to experience that to remember what a lot of other folks that are sitting down to draft a new set feel like. Yeah, I don't miss that feeling actually like especially because especially as a content creator i don't think that that's particularly useful right me me firing up a stream without having done my research or whatever to do some drafts that doesn't feel like people are going to get the most out of watching me but but also just personally like i think you and i are different in this respect like i follow spoiler season day by day i don't think you particularly do that or maybe you do now but i think you're much more like i'll just wait till the whole thing comes out and i'll check in on it like i feel like i'm much more hungry for that and to like stay up to date with that stuff and i think you're perhaps even also more just comfortable doing that like on the fly type drafting i'm not sure that i i am that good at that i mean i'm not comfortable doing that type of drafting necessarily and i don't I just don't seek out the spoilers. I mean, I whatever I see, I see. And then as soon as the full spoilers drop, that's when I really get to work in earnest. I meant more in the sense of I miss the excitement of going to a pre-release. You know, like we don't get that feeling anymore. Like we get the excitement of, you know, doing that first draft and try it's a different kind of excitement as a content creator, but it's not the wide-eyed like, what am I going to open? How sweet is this format going to be type feeling that you got as a kid going to a pre-release? Yeah. Scotty Arch wants to know, do you find yourself identifying a lot more draft errors than play errors? I don't feel like I make a lot of draft mistakes. I mean, it's going to sound super arrogant, but I, I like I would put myself in the top whatever X number of people in the world at drafting. I have a lot of confidence in my ability to draft. So I would say I identify play errors much more than I identify draft errors. It's easier for me to identify draft errors probably than it is for players because I think I'm a better drafter than a player. Um, but that's sort of my my two cents on that question. Yeah, I think unfortunately I'm going to say, say the same thing. I, I don't find myself 
making draft errors or like, you know, I recognize when I'm making, you know, I'll say things like the correct pick is blah, but I'm going to do this other thing. Like, I feel like I, if I wanted to at draft in and draft out, do the, I'm drafting day two of a GP or at the PT or whatever, I could do that. I just, my interests don't often <laughs> or not always align with that mentality. Got another question from JD Newland here. Do you have any in-game methods for pulling yourself out of tilt? I do not. Yikes. Yikes. Other than like, I think, you know, the two of us are pretty good for each other when we're streaming. If we see, you know, you did this for me the other day. I was tilted um, with something that had happened in chat and you were like, just let it go. And I think you and I have the relationship with each other now that we can just say, hey, this isn't great, like fix this. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that we can do for each other. But as far as if I'm tilting, the best thing for me to do is just stop playing magic. And I understand that about myself. And, I, you know, I frequently, you know, if I'm streaming and that happens to me, I shut the stream down and do something else and, you know, come back the next day fresh. This is going to sound like a really deep cut and it is, but so there's some like music that I try and play that helps me. Um, the the Chemical Plant Zone theme song from Sonic the Hedgehog 2 for Sega Genesis, I find to be quite good at getting me untilted. I just put that thing on a loop sometimes when I'm streaming to get myself out of tilt. Speaking of, have you seen Klug Alter's uh, yeah, Alter of yeah. Sonic on the Maelstrom Wander? Yeah, it's sick. And then did you see the like fan video that the person made? Yeah, that was super dope. Yeah, very, very cool. All right, next question comes from Squirp. Have you done any limited coverage? Any interest in doing that? Given that the complexity of limited is a major reason that there isn't more of a competitive scene, as mentioned earlier, it feels like your expertise could help to unravel that for the community and help increase interest. I have not done any limited coverage. You have dabbled in limited coverage, and I think you would absolutely crush it. Yeah, I haven't actually gotten a chance. I've gotten a chance to do limited coverage like once. Like it was sort of random when Channel Fireball was doing their like 24 hour a day coverage at the start of uh, quarantine. I got some uh, some opportunities to do that and pop into people's streams. And sometimes people were doing limited on like day one of a set. But generally the coverage that I've done and I got, you know, did like six to eight months of coverage for this these fandom legends tournaments last year um you know i only got to be like the play-by-play person which i think i am good at i would love to get to do like the expert seat or the the color seat whatever you want to call it um but coverage is definitely something i'm interested in doing for limited or otherwise and i do think that there are ways to do it that have not really been explored i think one of the biggest successes of coverage in the last few years was what was deemed GP Reed Duke. Ooh, yeah. Where it was a vintage tournament, but all you did was follow Reed. And basically he was the one doing the announcing. Like, so you rather than following cards, I feel like a lot of the stories of tournaments are cards or like planeswalker characters rather than the characters of professional magic play. And I think like following a person, whether or not they're going to 3-0 or 0-3, following a person through their draft and then their three rounds of play is much better than jumping around and watching someone who's 1-0 and then 2-0 and then, you know, like I think it's much better to follow people. That is more interesting to me than following decks or whatever. And I think that helps with limited. Like you get attached to, oh, they drafted this deck. This was the plan. You know, you have an interview with them and then you watch them enact that game plan with that deck and you get used to it. I think that's more easy to follow than like jumping around a bunch. Yeah, I would echo all of that. And I would say, I think you would be fantastic at coverage. I would love to do coverage, but not, I'm not as ambitious about it as you are, but I think you and I would be a slam dunk coverage pair for 
drafting. I think, you know, we would have a lot of chemistry and an understanding of the format. I would love to do that with you specifically. Yeah. Outside of that, I don't have a particular desire to do it, but we did once upon a time, you know, when you were trying to get into coverage with SCG, we made an audition tape uh, covering one of the drafts and that was super fun. It was a blast. I think we would be good. I do too. I do too. That would be, that would be very, very fun. All right. Last question here coming from Bigby Smalls. What are some MTG skills you feel like you've applied to your life outside of MTG? All right. So MTG has helped me quite a bit. I think the number one skill that I would say I've applied in my life is understanding what is in my control and what's not and letting the things go that are outside of my control. Um, You know, and just as far as, you know, a little peek inside my life here or whatever, as far as teaching, you know, there's very much in teaching a hierarchy of teaching jobs in the band world as far as like public school education goes, you know, where they're entry level jobs, you know, you're moving your way up the food chain and things like that. Um, I'm a really good teacher, musician, band director. And, you know, my career has not quite gone as quickly as I would have liked necessarily as far as moving up the the food chain. And so just understanding, you know, in interviews and things like that, you know, I can do my best and, you know, maybe you're going to get the job, maybe you're not, but coping with that not going as well as I would have expected it to go has gone much better because I play magic and I know how to lose and I know how to handle, you know, having this busted deck and, you know, not 3-0-ing or things like that. And all of those skills are just insanely good life skills. And I think, you know, you've referenced the making your your own luck episode, but the, the whole crux behind that episode was, you know, here are MTG problems. And then, you know, we also spun it towards here's what can happen in life and how you can use that stuff to handle uh, you know, your own life experiences. And one unknown hobby of mine, I think, to a lot of people is just self-help books and that sort of thing. And so I'm really passionate about all of that. And I would say MTG definitely applies to real life. Yeah, I think this is sort of like a little spin on that, not like understanding what's in your control slash like what to prioritize. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff in draft and in gameplay about like, you know, or, or tier lists or whatever, like thinking about ranking things or prioritizing certain things or reasons versus rewards for things. A lot of those magic concepts, I think, can be applied to life in terms of just like making time for what's important for you or setting aside the things that aren't things that you need to be focusing on, like figuring out what are the what are the actual reasons to do stuff in my life versus maybe the rewards or the payoffs for stuff in life, you know, getting making the hard decisions or or actually having to do the homework before doing a certain thing. I think those are are important lessons that MTG, I think, hammers home a lot. Right. And you can also go to the other extreme, right? And take it too far. I mean, life is not a set of EV equations, yeah. right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so true. I think that's that's important to remember as well, you know, that you're dealing with people. And, you know, one of the things I have to remind myself as a teacher all the time is, you know, I'm, I'm so used to evaluating magic cards and evaluating kids and trying to push kids to be great is that, you know, ultimately, I've got people's kids in front of me, like every person that I deal with on a day to day basis is someone's kid. And, you know, to not write them off is, you know, well, this person's not going to be a great player in my band. So I shouldn't pay attention to them. I'm trying to help them all grow as much as they possibly can. So just remembering that life is way more than than magic and those, you know, things that we're trained to think about critically and analyze. Yeah, absolutely. I love Biz in chat says eat your vegetables, which is a great lesson for both magic and life. I say that to myself (laughs) all the time in draft when I like want to take a sweet card, but feel like what I need to take is this two drop or whatever. I refer to that as eating my vegetables. Ben, are you eating your vegetables these days? That's what vitamins are for, baby. Oh, God. All right. I'm going to have it. You'll be a guest on my food podcast. We'll, We'll have an intervention. And on that note, great place to wrap us up. 
Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to Channel Fireball for sponsoring this podcast. If you're heading over to CFB for any and all purchases, signing up for CFB Pro to get our sweet written content on the pro side and a lot of other great content as well, please use the code LOL, all caps, at checkout to let them know we sent you there. You can check us out. Everyone's checking us out right now on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me, twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for Ben. Mr. is spelled out. We're also on Twitter under those same usernames, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to do something I hate, and we will catch you next year for another episode (laughs) of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Yeah, I'm just taking a swig at Diamond Dew. Swig, <clears throat> swig time. I can, I can, I can take a swig.